Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I think the engineer of the future will be more like an English major or a, a, a music major Somebody that can like really explain their thoughts very well. If you have kids, I would not send them to do computer science. Send them to liberal arts. It's Da Vinci, right? What was so amazing about Da Vinci? Da Vinci was an artist, like he was a painter, he was a sculptor, he was an engineer. Breadth, more than depth, is increasingly going to be critical. Part of me finds it very like almost insane to think about what if there's never a new programming language? You know, what if we're at the end of history for new programming languages and the next and last programming language is Hindi? Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode features a session from ELC Annual 2023, our annual conference for engineering leaders in San Francisco, about how the generative AI moment is shaping the future of software development and what software development might look like in the decades to come. And joining us, we have Tara Hernandez, VP of Developer Productivity at MongoDB, Eric Meyer, Senior Director of Engineering at Meta, and Jocelyn Goldfein, Managing Director at Zeta Venture Partners. And their conversation covers everything from what skills future engineers will need as the industry adopts more AI capabilities, what the next generation of building software might look like, how AI will augment human creativity in the engineering role, whether or not flow will or will not be necessary in the future, and speculation about what will make the best engineers in 2033. If you want to check out more sessions from ELC Annual 2023, we have a number of them available online right now. You can check them out at elc.community. Enjoy this conversation with Jocelyn Goldfein, Eric Meyer, and Tara Hernandez. So I just wanted to kind of lead off a little bit with, you know, what what we're doing here. Like, what, what drew us to speculate? This whole panel is an invitation to wild speculation about the future, because I don't think we really can see it from here, um, but we can take a, a shot at it. And I'll lead with saying why, why I wanted to, to tackle this question, which is just that I feel like um, my dad was a computer engineer in the 60s and 70s. Like, he actually experienced the punch card era. I started my career as an engineer. My first programming language was C, but sort of rapidly eclipsed by safer and, and you know, more high-level languages. Felt like that that was a pretty big evolution. Now that I see what generative AI makes possible, I kind of think that it's not just going to be GitHub Copilot. It can't possibly just be GitHub Copilot. It's going to make what we do today look like punch cards. And so I just kind of want to like think about what that's going to be and, and not just what it's going to be next year, but, but next decade. Of course, I'd love to invest in startups that bring that future about, but sort of first and foremost, as a practitioner, I want to know. <laughs> And uh, so would love to hear from each of you also, like, what made you interested? What made you accept my invitation to talk about this? And what makes you qualified? Like, what have you seen before that might give you a little bit of uh, extra perspective? Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, so I, I think if you look at the landscape of programming languages today, I think we're still chasing Lisp. Um, like, you know, I think Java 21 can, just came out. 
there's nothing really kind of like new there that kind of like, you know, didn't exist, um, I don't know, 50 years ago. And even if I look here at like, you know, a lot of the kind of booths, people are kind of like, you know, developing tools, but it's still targeted at the way we currently program. And what is programming really? Well, it's like something you have in your in your mind and you want the machine to do that for you. Right now, the way we do that is really primitive, even though we kind of call it declarative or, or, or whatever you want to do. So I do think that if I look 30 years from now, well, of course, the easy answer would be look back 30 years. Nothing has changed a lot. So look forward 30 years. Nothing will have changed a lot, but I don't think that's true. Um, I, I feel, and, and everybody here, kind of like there's a lot of talk about this, LLMs have really caused a phase change in the industry and things that like sounded like science fiction are now possible. Um, so I, I think like, you know, programming will drastically, drastically change. Um, but it's not just only software, like, you know, writing code. It's the whole process around it. And so, yeah, like, let me get, like, you know, like, leave it at that and give my mic to uh, Tara. All right. So the reason I'm here is I'm the curmudgeon and I'm the cynic. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and also, I just want to point out that I've known Jocelyn since she was a punk intern back at Netscape. <laughs> and so in my head, she will always be a punk intern. The fact that she's a partner at a VC firm is completely irrelevant to me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. But this does actually remind me of the fish camera. Like, and oh, yeah. you know, like we got the browser and we we're like, holy shit, the internet's going to be amazing. What should we do with it? We should point a camera at a fish tank. At Lou Montulli's right? fish like, tank. Like we were yeah. not, we yeah. had, we did not, right? And I think that like the, 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 what we're doing with AI today is the equivalent of a fish tank. Like we, we know it's big. We just don't entirely know what it's for yet. Right. And I, and I think the really interesting part and kind of plussing on what you were saying, Eric, is that in 30 years, a lot have changed, but a lot hasn't changed. Right. And I think if we think, think back to the beginning of the World Wide Web and the modern Internet era, right, post mainframes and, and whatnot, we see that it's much like humanity. The good stuff has gotten more good and the bad stuff has gotten way worse. Right. Um, and so I, right now, I think AI is, is an inflection point. But I think the same thing is going to hold true. The good stuff is going to start to get really good, and the bad stuff is going to get even worse. Which, if you think about the state of the internet right now with places like 4chan and QAnon and Stormfront and all those other garbage places, we can amplify things in really bad ways. And I also think if you think about, like, so, you know, in developer productivity, how can we uplevel our developers? It's like, I think we need to be very thoughtful about this. And I have a great example that I saw a couple days ago. Someone was, was humorously commenting on some social media. They said, Tell me how to use the RM command in such a way that it confirms before it removes. And what does chatbot says? It says, oh, RM-F will confirm before you <laughs> remove. All right. And then not one hour after I saw that and chuckled, I was, I was like, oh, I, I gotta, uh, we're going on camping soon. I want to get a futon. I'm going to go to Costco. I just, because I'm an idiot, I just type in Costco. Google happily returns its first response. I click on it. It's not Costco. It's some hacker site in the Ukraine. That's trying to steal, and it, I logged in before I noticed, and then it wanted me to give a credit card, right? And why does it do that? Because Google's algorithms are incorrect. Google looks at Quora in order for certain types of questions, and Quora is starting to be littered with inaccuracy even more than it was, right? So I think the sweet spot that we're going to see with AI becoming everything we want it to be is someone has to crack the nut for how do we ensure accuracy and correctness to a degree that as an industry we have not done yet for, for information management. But as someone who cares about things like developer productivity, I think this is going to be critical because when we get that and we have a confidence that what we can get from AI is actually reliable, it's going to change the world. But we're not there yet.
Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. All right, so I want to throw back to Eric and ask the big question. Like, if you have to imagine, if you're if you're sort of forced to project a decade in the future or more, I mean, pick wherever you think the if you think the tipping point is further, project out to the tipping point. What is the next chapter, the next generation of building software look like? I, I have to go back also to what Tara said. Right now, the LLMs or AI is not reliable. Like I did a little experiment with um, OpenAI with function calls. And so like, I, I don't know if people know this, right? But you can tell like, you know, the model to kind of call a function if it thinks it needs it. Now, the great thing what, what this does is that if the model doesn't like the answer that your function returns, it will just like, you know, throw it away and give your own answer. So say that you have like a function that just does arithmetic and like, you know, it sends two plus three to your function and the function returns seven, the model will just drop the seven and say it's five. With like behavior like that, we can never use these models to have like write any code, right? Because the model will have some opinion about like, you know, the code that this executes. And um, so I think this is like a very, very big problem in order to use these models as kind of like, you know, as the basis for computation. So that's a problem we need to solve. But um, assuming that we have solved that, I think that the, the LLMs or, or like AIs will be the new CPUs. A lot of people look at um, models right now as databases, right? So they, they are, have compressed knowledge of the world. You can ask them questions and they will give you answers. I think that's not a great view. Maybe if you're a database person, my whole like career, I've been trying to kind of get rid of databases and replace that by programming languages. But I look at these LLMs as weird neural computers. So they perform actions for you. And so what we need to build, like, you know, to 30 years from now is have programming languages that instead of executing on like regular virtual machines or regular hardware, will run on LLMs. Um, so these LLMs are literally the kind of like the run times of the future. And then like, what is the IDE? Well, like, you know, that will be some interface where you can kind of like communicate with that in natural language or, or whatever, but it, it will be radically different. Um, and also the run times will be very, very different. And as I said, like, you know, these LLMs will be like the new CPUs. That's, that's what, I, what I envision. And I think to me, it's really important to recognize that, and I tell this to my engineers all the time, right? If you're in infrastructure, the joke is you got to automate yourself out of a job. That's your goal. But automation does not equal autonomy. And so to me, I think the really interesting thing that will happen is not how do we increasingly rely on the LLMs as a distinct system, but how we enable interactions with those systems more quickly, especially given the amount of data or data processing in your case, um, in order to bring human and compute power together more effectively. Because until we achieve sentience, and I think we just passed Skynet Day, so we can't offload 
human judgment uh, from the equation. And I think that's, to me, that's a really uh, important thing to remember. So if I'm looking as a, you know, looking for a vendor who is offering AI solutions, it's not what does this replace to me? It's again, how does it augment? Um, because I don't want to hand over responsibility. I can't hand over responsibility. I will always, or my engineers will always have responsibility. So how can we augment ourselves rather than replace ourselves? So I've, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of just venture a few thoughts in this area myself, which is, you know, I think that, that programming languages occupy this uneasy territory. It's like the most liminal possible overlap between what machines can understand and what human beings can understand. And like, we have to train for years and really cudgel ourselves as humans to communicate to a machine at a level of abstraction that the machine can understand and that, you know, we small subset of elite specialized human beings also can understand. I had the fortune or misfortune in college of taking a class in assembly. And so, you know, so I never had to work and produce production code in assembly, but once upon a time, human beings did. Once upon a time, machine language and assembly language was where this met. And thanks to compilers and parsers, which we do trust in full, like we don't, we don't have humans code reviewing the machine language that comes out of uh, compilers. You know, we've managed to bring the layer of abstraction high enough to get easier and easier for humans and C is a lot easier than assembly and Python is a little bit easier than, than C and maybe we're all chasing Lisp. And so I just think that, you know, in 10 years, whenever the tipping point is, I think it is inevitable that the lingua franca, that, that liminal space between a human being and a machine is going to be English. And humans aren't going to have to climb a learning curve to learn a language that the machine can speak. The machine will be able to meet us at English or at Mandarin or, you know, any other natural language that, uh, that programmers want to articulate something to the machine in. And, you know, at that point, I do think, you know, at that point, we might as well have compilers that go from English to machine code. I'm not sure why we need Python as an intermediate output. And so, like, part of me finds it very like almost insane to think about what if there's never a new programming language? You know, what if there's, you know, what if Rust is the last, I don't know what's the latest programming language, but like, what if Rust is the last one? You know, what if we're at the end of history for new programming languages and the next and last programming language is Hindi? Like that's one of my thoughts. But you know, another thought is, well, hell, at that point you need engineers at all anymore. Can you just have product managers? Can you have every human being talk to the AI and build their own tools that way? And here I'm like emphatically on the side of the engineers. I just think that like what we're doing all the time is not just translating the PRD into a language that the machine can understand. It is clearly specifying to the machine the behavior we want it to have under all circumstances. And a PRD is just underspecified. And what most human beings can describe to a machine is underspecified. I think like what engineers are going to still be needed for is understanding the capabilities of machines well enough to describe the requirements in an excruciating level of detail. So that's my that's my theory of the future. Can I disagree? Yes. Because I think Let's fight. It, yeah. I, 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 I think you have a very old-fashioned view of how it works. Because you you're kind of like you know you're still assuming that we have to explain everything kind of like in detail to the machine. The two of you like you know you said that you worked at Netscape like before Netscape, how would you interact with the internet? You would use Telnet, right? And now suddenly there was a different UI and now it became like, you know, everybody could browse the web. And this is like a UI change, a small UI change, but that has huge implications. And I think the same thing is happening with these LLMs. I mean, GPT existed way, way before ChatGPT came out, but the chat interface suddenly made it, it's like the, the browser for, for AI. And what that enabled is like a back and forth. You can have like, you know, a conversation with the, with the machine. And I do think that like with programming, like it's right now when you write code, it's like a one-way street. You have to have explained to the machine step by step. But what if the machine will tell you, hey, Jocelyn, I don't really understand what you're saying. Can you make that more precise? 
So I think the, the way we will program will be like an interaction and then you don't have to be like, you know, completely like detailed because the machine will ask for like, you know, like how to get like improve like and what it doesn't understand. So here's another way of thinking about it. So I think about all of the ways that as we have evolved, including to Rust, uh, being super fast in optimization, it is based on understanding of the microchip sets that have increasingly been reducing because maintaining, like in the Netscape days, we shipped on 42 platforms, right? Who remembers Spark and DEC and HPUX? And it was all so bad, and, you guys. I mean, this is probably older than some of you, but anyway. Yeah. It wasn't Linux support, it was Unix support. Right, yeah, Linux was just a glimmer in Linux's eye. Uh, I think we hosted MUDs, yes. those, the user groups at, at Netscape. But think about an, a, a, a scenario where, and again, we're getting close to sentience here and that makes me nervous, but imagine a scenario where an AI system could write its own hardware, right? Because at the end of the day, a lot of the way the industry currently works is because of the legacy systems that we have that we don't want to break, right? And that's what I mean about the, the what's the next inflection point? It's the inflection point that will allow us to either pick up the entirety of what we currently define as high-tech industry and move it or make it irrelevant because we don't need databases anymore. By the way, I work at a database company, so my CEO would be sad to hear that. Uh, anyway, but be that as it may, right? Like to me, the future is increasing stacks of technical expertise because somebody still has to invent the underlying hardware, the lowest level hardware. So I think about like quantum computing and the qubit chips and all of those things. What if that could be completely controlled and what we now define as high-tech industry basically becomes the platform, right? This is platform engineering. It's like this underlying stuff. And programming is just like turning on a light switch from an end user perspective. Conveying your will, conveying your will. Yeah. It's magic. It's magic. It's magic. But wherever there's magic, there has to be magicians. So I accept all these visions of the future because I think, you know, uh, ensemble models do a better job of predicting than any one model by itself. So, so somewhere at the intersection of all the collective views in the audience where is where we'll find truth, but okay. So if you, if you play out your thesis about what the task is of the future, then what are the, like we all have a vision in our minds of what makes someone a great engineer today. I mean, I think there can be different kinds of great engineers, like people who are super fast and productive are not always the same people who can like, you know, fix the hardest problems or, or design something that's sort of really bulletproof or scalable. But engineering leaders, we all have kind of a, a you know, a, at least a few prototypes in our brain of the traits and skills that make someone a great engineer. Do you think those will change when the work changes so much? Like is the, is the, is the 10X engineer of 2033 um, have a really different profile than today? I, I think yes, for sure. Right now, like the 10X engineer, even if it exists, <laughs> is very much like a watchmaker. So they have, can have like, you know, like zoom in and they can like, you know, do magic knowing like, you know, a lot of details. I think the engineer of the future will be more like an English major or a, a, a music major Somebody that can like really explain their thoughts in some language very well. And that language is not like, like a, a formal language, but it's more like a, like, you know, like a diffuse language. And so, yeah, so if you have kids, I would not send them to do computer science. I think computer science is dead. Send them to a liberal arts college and let them do kind of like, you know, whatever except programming because that's a dead end. Luckily, my 18-year-old wants to be a lawyer. I think she's safe there. We'll be, uh, we'll be litigating this for the next five decades. Well, hopefully she saw not to use ChatGPT in order to, <laughs> to generate her legal brief. I think Gen Z gets it. The kids are all right. Yeah. No, I, you're probably right. I, you know, when I think about the 10X, and I, I also I hesitate to use that term, it's Da Vinci, right? What was so amazing about Da Vinci? 
Da Vinci was an artist, like he was a painter, he was a sculptor, he was an engineer, he was a, a mortician or a pathologist. I'm not quite sure he cut up dead bodies, right? But breadth, more than depth, is increasingly going to be critical. The more our world expands, the more specialists become constrained. So the broadest education possible, and even beyond that, a culture that, you know, we talk about as managers having a learning culture and always learning culture, that's the sign of a good engineer. We need that in society because this is beyond just high-tech industry, right? And so that an investment in ongoing education as a cultural value uh, is maybe something that we as this industry can kind of lead the way on. I mean, in my vision of the future, like there's still a role for humans to play in being sort of like excruciatingly exact about details. So I'm not quite prepared to let go of the watchmaker, you know, skill set. Well, the I kinda, AI is going to solve that one, isn't it? I, 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 I'm not so sure. I, I think it does become magic, but I absolutely agree with you about expanding the definition towards imaginative creativity um, and towards expressiveness because how well we can express ourselves to the machine matters. And I think maybe one thing that has been really valuable but may no longer be as valuable is sort of the, the ability to enter flow state, right? When we're programming, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm programming, like my brain enters an altered state where I'm really thinking, like where I've turned my brain into a compiler and I'm thinking in Python. And if I'm knocked out of that, it takes me half an hour to get back in. It, it disrupts my productivity. I'm really slow until I sort of get back up to that mindset. I don't think we're going to have to do that or rely on that anymore. I think that may be something that does go away. Um, You'll know it's working when Google stops having technical questions that involve is your solution order one, order N, log N, and then justify? Yeah, yeah, because that's going to be like, the compiler anymore. does that. Humans don't need to know about that, you know? That's, that, that's where that's going to go. If you want to take the flow state away from me, now I'm going to be really angry because... You can have flow composing poetry. I'm not saying you can't enter flow. I'm just saying you don't have to be in flow. But the whole point, like, you know, like for me, the whole point of programming is like getting into the flow. I feel like a junkie, right? Like, and I can get into flow by writing code or by snowboarding or by doing extreme sports. But maybe in the future, it's like just like people go horseback riding, which is not a skill that's useful anymore, but they do it for fun or to get into the flow. Maybe in the future, people will still ride Python just to get into the flow. Just so please fun. don't, yes, yeah. for fun, but don't take that away because that's the only good thing about programming is okay, getting that adrenaline rush from the flow. <laughs> well, yes, yes. So hum humans will, will, will drive cars and, and write code only for fun in the future. You, you heard it here first. Okay, so if the role of engineering changes in this way, like there's no way that we change in isolation, right? Like there's a whole ecosystem of organizational support for the creation of software that involves not just engineering, but product management and design and QA and docs and engineering managers. Everything around the role has to change when the role changes. Any, uh, any sort of deep insights there? Where's that going? Oh, no, it's not gone. It's mm -hmm. not gone. And again, that comes back to the need for human judgment, right? When you think about what is leadership ultimately, well, I mean, this, we, could, we could probably argue about this for weeks, but in, in simplistic forms, leadership ultimately is curating the crowdsourcing of a bunch of smart people to an outcome, right? To take a group of people and collectively enable them to do more than what one person could do. Can AI replace that? No, because AI is not sentient. Can AI help with that? Maybe. And I know there's a lot of companies that are trying to figure out how to do that. But I think, you know, and like I said, when somebody figures it out, it's going to be amazing. But I don't think it means it's, it's it doesn't mean it's, it moves beyond augment. Because you take the human factor out, you lose that creativity, you lose that innovation, you lose that weird 1230 at night eating bad Chinese food thing that happens. 
when you were inventing the programming language that somebody did like 10 years ago or so, just because it was fun, right? And until AI can do that, and, and, and frankly, if AI can do that, what's the point of us existing? I, I kind of think it's quite different. I do think that like, what, what is a people manager, right? Like, you know, you're sitting there doing a one-on-one -on -one and you have to kind of like answer some like, oh, I'm so anxious, whatever. And then you have to kind of calm the person down or whatever. These AIs are much better like therapists than human managers. So the first thing, thing we do is we can outsource like our one-on-ones to an AI. Then the other thing is like your product managers, you can ask the model like, hey, give me some ideas about how to build a product so we can get rid of those. And then it's now, it's like the ultimate empowerment of the individual, the creative individual that can now build this product completely by themselves in their kind of like, you know, like sitting kind of like in the garden and like, you know, like enjoying life. So yes, I think it will be completely different and developers will disappear. I do think that people managers, program managers, product managers, it will all disappear. The immense power of AI will just like wipe you away. So yeah, maybe kind of like, you know, try to find like, you know, a different job. Think about it already because like 30 years from now, like this won't not exist anymore. Okay, Eric, can I disagree with you? Of course. <laughs> All right. I think software is a team sport. I think these systems are too sort of big and important and complicated for like one person on there. Even if one person was empowered by AI to have all the functional skills necessary to build it, I think building alone is fundamentally like not just like lonely, but I think tons of creativity comes from collaboration and comes from the intersection, the ensemble of ideas. And maybe you'll get some of that from the AI. But, you know, I think that if creators of software become generalists that, rather than specialists, I think you'll still want, like, the TV writer's room, right? Like, where we, first of all, we divide and conquer because there's different pieces, but that, like, we still want to sort of get together, not just to stitch the pieces together, but to kind of play off of each other, interact with each other. Like, I think we're going to still want it to be a team sport. I mean, not that there can't be someone building something small on their own, as, as happens today, but that I think, I think like big production grade software that does big important things in the world is still gonna be a team effort. That said, I do think some of these functional disciplines will merge. I think you need product management because as a VC, I've seen so many like great ideas that just die because nobody wants them because you didn't build the thing that actually solved a problem people had. Like somebody's got to go figure out what has value in the world. I think like that job still exists. Maybe again, augmented helped with AI tooling. I think that needs to happen. That person may need to, may be able to then go all the way and specify to the machine what needs to be built. So that may merge with engineering. But I think there's plenty of people who are going to be really good at specifying the detailed I still think there's a different level of abstraction in terms of requirements. There's like, what's the market problem? And like, what's the nitty gritty behavior? And then what's the workflow? And then what's the nitty gritty behavior that makes the workflow bulletproof and anticipates all the edge cases? I think people may specialize at those different layers of abstraction, even if it's not a fundamentally different skill set. With design, I kind of don't know what to say. I think like I am an ignorant, like I don't know how to use Photoshop, but clearly like specialized tools for design are going to go away. And the AI can probably produce generic web interface number nine, you know, on a dime. But I think genuine creative, visual and graphical creativity still needs to come from somewhere. And, and I think humans are a pretty good bet even in 10 years. Well, you think about test, let's take test driven development. All right, let's, let's set ourselves a challenge as an industry. Yeah. What's the test? All right, the test is the parable of the tire swing. Does everybody know the parable of the tire swing? It's a great comic, right? The tire swing hanging from the tree, what the customer wants, what they think they want, what the PM heard, all of that stuff. All right, when we have an AI system that can actually solve for the parable of the tire swing, we will know that your vision is coming to pass. Yeah. Gauntlet thrown, go figure it out.
but I didn't get to the last one, which is oh, QA. And no, 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 I'm actually really glad you gave that because I agree with it for once. <laughs> but, you know, we're kind of used to sort of, you know, if, if the dog wagging the tail of QA a little bit, okay? And, um, and I think if you're in QA, you have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder of, does everybody see me as the source of value that I am? And I wonder if in the future, actually humans end up, the thing that humans bring to the table that is most valuable is actually QA is actually looking at what was built and saying, no, nah, no, nah, you missed this. You didn't get it right here. I can imagine the crazy edge case, like you, dear model, are sitting at the at the median fat part of the bell curve thinking about the happy case. I have an imagination that lets me consider all like the terrible weird edge cases. So I, I do wonder actually if, if that ends up being like, even in the short term, I think the machines are gonna produce code and humans are gonna sit there doing RLHF reading the code and fixing it. So the role of engineering may be sort of trending subtly in that direction. So maybe today's best QA people are gonna be the best engineers in 2033. Your vision of the future is really dreadful. It's like, you know, like we <laughs> no will all be QA, QA engineers. <laughs> we, there still will be like room for like, you know, low level detailed stuff. I think, think about it as with music, right? Like, you know, like in order to make music in the past, like say you want to play violin, you, you would have to have practice and like, <laughs> now everybody can make music with computers without having to go through that whole training process. And so the tediousness is not necessary anymore. And I think with, with coding, it will be the same thing. Mm -hmm. And especially like things like Q&A, like that's why we have like five boots that want to kind of automate, like, you know, testing. We it's don't true. want to do testing. That's boring like shit. So like, you know, like yeah, we yeah. shouldn't be doing that. So we should I, definitely give the not, machines, please not. we should definitely give yeah. the machines the boring work. I agree. But, uh, and, and reading code is actually something humans are really bad at. But I think the definition of what it means to evaluate the quality of an output of a model, that will change from what we think of as, as QA as well. All right, we're, we're, uh, we're 30 minutes in. We should definitely stop and give the audience a chance to, uh, to mix it up with us. So fight us or at least ask us questions. Thank you. This was super fantastic discussion. <laughs> uh, I'm a mom of a teenager. So we have this like every day at home, probably. The question is not for this crowd, probably I'm thinking as a mom for the next generation. As an engineer, whenever we look for an engineer, the logical and cognitive skills is something we always, when we recruit, I mean, I, we, we are having a fair set chat with our CEO. He's like, even if I'm CEO, I'm an engineer and I, the thing should make sense logically to me. AI, till we probably go to quantum computing, probably all AI is still based on some data. And I don't know how much of logical cognitive intelligence is going to be there with AI. I'm talking 10 years, maybe 30 years, it will be there with quantum computing in place. Are those basic skills of logical and cognitive ability of an engineer still play an impact, even if AI coming in, or do you see that also changing? So I'll, I'll start, I, I think not, obviously, but like even like, you know, if you think about math skills, right? You know, a four-year-old can do integrals and derivatives and like, you know, whatever complicated math. And so, no, I think we are kind of like, you know, if we look at our education, we're teaching our kids like, you know, like skills that are kind of useless. And I do think that like, you know, what we really should focus on is more like, how do you express your ideas at a high level? Um, and then the machines will take care of that. But again, like I think even for, for mathematics, a lot of what you learn if you study mathematics is I think useless because the machines can do it better than, than humans. I don't know if I'd go quite 
that far out, but I think, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, the single most important thing we can learn, especially as kids, is how to reason. We've been complaining about our industrial age-based educational system for a long time. There's that guy in England, Sir, Sir, I forget his name, but you probably know who I'm talking about. Talks about this all the time. Broad breadth-wise, I mean, I forget what the, some colleges even have a program. It's like classical training or something, or it's like how to reason. Go back to the Socratic method about just being able to learn something quickly, but be able to have the confidence in what it is that you just learned, right? I think that is the key skill. This rote repetition, going back to stuff that you can just look up or increasingly now prompt ask, I agree, is not useful. You prompted me to, to envision a new answer to a question I asked a while back, which is like, what are the skills and traits that will be a great engineer in the future? And I think one of the really biggest ones that I truly believe about when I'm looking to hire an engineer today is curiosity. And I think that is going to hold. And so I think fostering curiosity is incredibly important. I agree with everything said about breadth. I'll say one more thing. I have a kid in junior year of high school this year, and we have made a really contrarian decision to um, not take calculus in high school and to do stats instead, to, to prioritize stats over calc. And uh, this may turn out to be a bad decision from a college admission standpoint, but I'm just like positive that statistics is infinitely more useful to my child as a human being, as a citizen, as an adult, in terms of critical thinking, skepticism, what could be, you know, how could the data lie to me, not to take things at face value, but also to that kind of logical reasoning, extrapolation. Like these are things that the human wetware is kind of bad at. And so cultivating our weak areas and making, building that muscle, I think is incredibly important. And I think adding AI to the mix doesn't help us. So we got to help ourselves. Hi, uh, thanks for the conversation. So um, I work for Waymo. So I work on a self-driving car. Every day I think about the system integral as a whole, you know, software system, hardware system, sensors. Um, so to me, I want to challenge the definition of software development. Maybe in the future, what you're talking about, how you envision a future that's actually intelligent development. If we look around, what we can really sense today is very, very constrained. It's only in the screen. It's only, you know, the servers. But what about looking around us? You know, there's a tree. Can we smell it in the future? Do you agree? And also like, have you envisioned a world where things are more integral as a human interacting with each other with general intelligence? So I, I think that's a good observation. We're still, you know, interacting with our computers, like, you know, in a very primitive way, like typing or clicking on the screen. What if we, like, there's a lot of things that we cannot see, right? Because our eyes cannot see all the kind of, like, you know, light frequency. Like, imagine that with AI, we could see the same thing that, like, a bird can see or, or something like that. I mean, I think that would be cool. And, like, again, like, it's not just enhancing our intelligence, but also enhancing our, our abilities as humans. And people, I've seen, like, people that, like, you know, are paralyzed can, can walk again, like, you know, with AI. So I do think that we can expand it to have like more physical things for sure. I was thinking about this and actually also in context of what you were asking, which is, you know, one of the coolest classes I took when I was at school at UC Santa Cruz was a science fiction communication class, right? And looking at science fiction from the perspective of futurism, right? Arthur C. Clarke for it in his day foretold quite a bit. And if I look around at the internet now, I think everybody sees William Gibson and Neil Stevenson and others, right? Especially Neil Stevenson these days, um, the, you know, the burb clave that, that the tech bros are trying to do over in the East Bay somewhere. So I think that, and if you think about the technologies that they're envisioning, I mean, they foretold the, the modern internet, we're trying to invent the metaverse, and so far only Second Life has really pulled it off. 20 years, God bless them. But yeah, that, that awareness, that situational awareness, the book in the Diamond Age that had that ability to detect things around us, like that, we're probably not that far from that kind of technology. And so going back to 
both how we think about the technology and how we want to educate our future citizens who contribute, like that beautiful creativity, that looking forward to what could we do? I think the sky's the limit and we need to encourage that as a, like a value proposition for how we approach it, because I think that's going to be one of those other critical inflection points. And then we'll have Skynet and we'll all die. Uh, one of the topics here about specificity, if, if we're not using programming languages, how do we get the machine to do what we want? You talked about whether it could be in English. I wonder what you think about like legalese if we need some sort of computer ease. And even with a dialogue system, what is the potential for visual artifacts as part of that dialogue? I don't know if I have a full and complete answer, but my brain tipped over when you said legalese because like I spent my whole career as an engineer and then seven years ago I went into venture capital and all of a sudden I'm reading legal documents as a regular part of my job. And the thing that dawned on me that maybe you know already and a lot of the audience does is like legalese is just like a really bad programming language. Like all legal contracts are trying to do is set out a set of rules that are sort of really bulletproof except that they don't have a compiler. And so there's no like, so you can't actually check the thing for bugs very well and you don't find out that there are bugs until it comes to litigation down the line and then like, and then you put it in front of a judge who's gotta be, anyway. So I actually think that legal contracts would be way better if they were implemented as code. And I think there's a good insight that um, this may not be at all your question, sorry. It just, you, you, you just you pressed a button and played my tape. So I, I do think we're headed to a world, like I don't wanna say the phrase smart contracts because that makes me think of blockchain and crypto. And I don't think the way we record the contract is at all what makes it smart. I think the way we specify it. Um, and I think that AI is gonna be better that humans, like humans in conversation with AI, will be better than humans alone at producing something that is actually testable and bulletproof um, than, than the contracts we have today. So, you know, maybe there is room for domain-specific subsets of natural language to solve domain-specific problems like contracts. And I still think it's like, it's something that is at a level of abstraction that's easy for humans, like English, and not hard for humans, like legalese or Python. So my, my guess is that it won't be English, but German. Um, it's like, the Germans have argued that German is the best language for philosophy because like you can express your ideas more crisply than in any other language. So who knows? But it would be also be sad if it was English because there's so many like, you know, non-native speakers. And I think they're already at a disadvantage right now because so much is in English. So I hope that like the future will not be English centric, but allow for like a more diverse set of languages that these things can understand. I mean, I keep telling my kids to learn Spanish and Mandarin so that they're set. They can go anywhere in the world. I completely lost where we were going. Maybe we should go to the next question. <laughs> um, well, I've been to Germany and I'd argue they speak better English than I do. But I'm curious, you guys are saying that integrals, things like that will go away, but I would argue that those things are requirements to like, let's say get a PhD in math and they do change how I think. So I'm curious where you guys think that role will be. So be very careful. I didn't say that integrals would go away, but doing all that stuff manually will go away, right? For example, like if you learn how to do derivatives, like in high school, you can do derivatives for very simple things. But like if you use derivatives to train a neural network, that is way too complicated to do by hand, right? So it's still the concepts you need to know, but I think the road to learning that we teach people is kind of useless. I don't think you understand derivatives better if you have to do kind of like the trivial cases by hand than getting the, the, the concepts. So I think we should focus more on the concepts and not so much on the mechanics. But yes, so the, but these concepts are still very, very important. I will say that if we evolve a math that eliminates the whole concept of proofs, 
I think we will achieve something really amazing. <laughs> Those killed me in college. Uh, thanks. Um, I have a question. So I think it's pretty indisputable at this point that we're going to move towards more AI-generated code. Like you mentioned, QAing and editing becomes more of the job. Uh, nowadays, everyone, everyone and their mother is a software engineer, right? We're hiring headcounts to build this REST API, API endpoint. So I imagine there will be a lot, a, a loss of workforce in the near future, right? Like how do we, as an industry, navigate this potential grieving period and transition to something I, I, I assume is going to be painful and I'm curious about that aspect. I think that's optimistic. I think there's many people who think, oh, we can eliminate 70% of our support and 30% of our engineers and whatever, whatever, whatever. But again, going back to an earlier premise, the technology is not in a place where we can reliably trust its accuracy. So I think any company that's racing to offload human beings are probably going to regret it if they don't already, right? In the future, I think that, yes, a certain category of work is going to go away. So as an industry and as, a, you know, as leaders who are looking forward, we need to think about what does the retraining model is because it's, those things are going to go away, but new things are going to arise, right? If you think about uh, when I was at a co the first company I worked at that had a business intelligence and a data warehousing team, I had never heard of that before. I'd been at Pixar. We didn't do things like that. But I went to a company and they had that. And there was like, I don't know, 150 engineers and maybe four data scientists. I can imagine five years from now, that might be 50 engineers and 70 data scientists. Maybe that's what happens, right? You know, overall, the numbers are probably not going to change all that much because human beings and our, the elasticity of our brains are going to adapt faster than any AI uh, tech-based technology because it's going to be fundamentally flawed for a long time. Okay, now he's going to argue with me. Uh, I'm, I'm going first. Okay. So I, I think like there's a big, big problem in our society today, namely that income is tied to work. So we all believe that in order to make money, you have to work. I think that's completely wrong. Like the ideal state is that we as humans don't have to work. We let all the machines do the work and then we as humans can do what we want to do as humans, like enjoy life. You only have one life on this planet. Why should you have like, you know, waste that on work? And so I think the only solution is to kind of have some kind of universal basic income where everybody can make a living without having to work. And we should like, you know, have all the machines do all the work. And if you want to do work, it's just for fun to get into the flow state, but nobody should be forced to work and everybody should be able to have a living without having to work for it. I'm kind of down with the baseline of people don't have to work, but I still feel like a bunch of people will want to work. But let me say this, I also, and I agree totally with Tara, sorry, I can't fight you, that this is going to take a much longer time than people think. Like 10 years might be, in, an, it might be too soon. So, I, you know, I don't think these jobs are going away, like, instantaneously. My other thought, and, like, here's the venture capital hat on, but, like, because I believe this is why I'm in venture capital, like, I'm just optimistic that the demand for there to be new technology, and you're right that that's not just software, like, it's the combination of software and hardware, but the demand to invent new products that make human life better and more productive has no ceiling. There's no end point. Like, I can picture a world that has too many lawyers or too many doctors. Like, how many doctors we need is just, like, a function of the number of humans on the planet, and at some level, once you've got a doctor for everything, people like it's probably enough right like you don't need more but I don't think there's any ceiling on the number of people you can have creating art or creating products because those products push the boundaries and create new demand so I don't think that like if if AI 
takes the tedium or the labor or it's a force multiplier on productivity that like will find the ceiling of demand for technologists. I think we'll just break new ground on the kinds of products that can be built and the value that can be created. I think we'll just accelerate value creation and technology creation. And, you know, maybe at some point we'll encounter the singularity, but like I'm a, I'm a singularity skeptic. So I, I just like, I just project things, you know, getting better. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you, everybody, for joining us and for the lively discussion. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.